so this is all to say you're very much a generalist. Um, so you have a lot of interests and you can write confidently. That sounds uh, insulting, doesn't it? That generalist? I don't know. Don't you think so? Well, I think we're going to get into this because I'd like to ask okay. you some questions about the academy. I don't think so. I don't think okay. generalism is a dirty word at all, and that's why I, that's why I call you it. Um, was, yeah. yeah. Let's pause the podcast and we can fight. Okay. <laughs> that's Sam Anderson, critic at large at the New York Times Magazine, taking just a little bit of offense at my suggestion that he is a generalist. Whether or not Sam likes it, and we explore why he might not, I still think my claim has some legs to stand on. Sam is just able to write about a lot. At the Times, he's recently published a personal essay on Mount Rushmore, a fascinating piece on Michelangelo's David, and profiles of Russell Westbrook, who plays basketball for the Oklahoma City Thunder, as well as the novelist Haruki Murakami and the poet Ann Carson. My conversation with Sam was long, so we've cut it into two parts, and today you get the first. Our debate about generalism takes us all over the map. We talk about Sam's time as an undergraduate at Oregon State and LSU, how he became a sort of autodidact. We talk as well about his early admiration for the old New Yorker writers like James Thurber and E.B. White. Sam describes life as a Ph.D. student in English at NYU, where he started to pitch articles to magazines almost entirely in secret. Sam describes his habits as a reader and critic, what he sees in Jock Derrida's command not to double the text, and how criticism itself should be a creative act. Our conversation starts as I asked Sam where he went to undergrad and how he became interested in magazine writing. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. So I went to SOU, Southern Oregon University, and it was this tiny little idyllic place, you know, no reputation to speak of, um, and I just kind of like lived in the library and hung out, made a real connection with an English professor and hung out in his office whenever he had office hours and when he didn't, like until he kicked me out. Um, and I read Dostoevsky over and over and over again, who's my great hero, and Wallace Stevens. And I just like, I always had jobs in college of working at the library and I would shelve books and just pull books and and read the first page and when something grabbed me I would check it out and or sit down and read it instead of shelving and I feel like that's largely how I got my education was just poking through stacks um and and developing a kind of intimate relationship with like a close intellectual relationship with the person the professor who yeah. you sort of just hung around with yep his name was Edverse Lewis and he died actually when I was here in New York in grad school and I flew back out before he died because he wanted to give me a bunch of his books, which was amazing. He gave me like, I don't know, 15 boxes of books or something, which I have at home. Um, <clears throat> but he, he's a really funny guy. The one exercise I remember in particular, which was really formative, was this critical assignment that he would give us called, it was just called an observation. It was just the most basic possible thing, but he spent all semester trying to teach us how to do it right. And it was, he would send us out into art galleries around town, um, or we could do it with poems. And essentially what he was training us to do was to break down some work of art into 
a system of artistic choices that work together to create some effect that mm -hmm. we could articulate. Uh, and it's just like, like I said, the most basic possible critical exercise, but that simplicity, once I kind of got it, was so powerful um, to look at a sculpture and say, here's what it does for me, or here's the thing I'm noticing or feeling or whatever, here's the, the big effect. And where is that coming from? So you're, you're writing um, at the New York Times and uh, before at New York Magazine. I mean, one of the things that characterizes it is its range. You can write about a lot of different kinds of things. Would Thanks. you Yeah, well, would you say that that sort of like that, that system of asking questions um, set a sort of foundation that... Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah totally. So to think of everything as a system of artistic choices... Or a system of, I mean, you know, you can analyze anything. It doesn't have to be artistic choices. You don't have to intuit this kind of like um, choice maker behind it. But just a system of effects that creates some larger effect, some cumulative effect. Yeah. So I think I, I've always been really interested in like granular readings. I really love the... Um, I mean, a bunch of the old school like close reading critics. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, Hugh Kenner... Yeah, yeah, of course. I love Hugh Kenner and like like in the pound era where he's like going crazy about the word the and what the word the does when you put it in front of the word cat. You know, it's like that kind of stuff. I love it. Um, did you ha did you have a sense when you were um, an undergrad uh, that you wanted to do magazine writing or did that did what you learned there? Did that make, make you just sort of want to become an academic? I never wanted to be an academic. Mm. Never, ever, ever. Um I always, I, okay, how far back do we want to go? Um, also, I don't want to repeat myself from things that you know about me already, but, but when I, when I hit like, like adolescence and mid teenage years, um, you know, you do that thing where you decide what kind of person you're going to be out in the world and your identity, you know, you kind of, throw throw your little grappling hook and wrap it around whatever you're gonna follow and for me that was literature and I think it was like I'd always loved reading as a as a little kid I'd always been good at it um and I decided it would be cool I think when I was like 14 or 15 and I read I always liked English class I read Ralph Waldo Emerson mm -hmm. I got really pumped and I thought oh I want to create that kind of feeling for people um, it felt very like strong and dramatic and, and I thought I bet I could do that. So I started reading everything and I, I decided I'm literature guy. I'm going to be great literature guy. And I start reading, re started reading Dostoevsky and, um, and I decided I'm going to be a great 19th century Russian novelist. <laughs> and I started trying to write fiction like that. It was as bad as you would imagine. And it was really trolling through the library stacks as an undergrad that I discovered the old, you know, I started picking up books that were like how to write. Mm. Um, and some writing book pointed me to the personal essays of E.B. White from like the twenties and thirties and forties. And, um, I found that really exciting, that tone. It was like, 
it, it like had the literary sophistication part that I was identifying with from other things I'd read, but it also had this new element of like colloquial everydayness mm. that I found really exciting. Um, so I think blending those things, the kind of literary cultured part with this colloquial, non-literary joking, joking around tone. Um, I found that really exciting. And that's when, so I started reading a lot of not only E.B. White, but then Dorothy Parker mm. and uh, James Thurber and S.J. Perlman and Robert Benchley and like the old, old New Yorker people. And that trail kind of led me into the wonders of the personal essay and magazine writing. And I think that's when I decided I want to be a writer like that. When would that have been? Would that have been an undergrad or when you went to grad school at LSU? Or that was undergrad. Okay. That was undergrad in the stacks at Southern Oregon University when I decided that. And then I started writing these very old-timey seeming like humor columns for mm. the, the paper there. Um, and yeah, but, but I also thought, well, I want to be really good at this. I want to be a really good writer and I think to be the best, you probably have to go out and educate yourself as thoroughly as possible about everything that's ever been written. And so I'm going to go read as much as I possibly can about everything. Um, I would like to be able to like use every possible literary effect to get to the, the final effect that I want to create. So I'm going to go, so I'm going to study English in college. I mean, I, I already went into college thinking I was going to study English, but that's where like the push toward the academy came from I think it was like well if you want to study English you got to study critical theory um, and yeah so that's how I ended up going further and further with that and going and we I went so I ended up at LSU because my wife my girlfriend at the time graduated a year before me and got into the PhD program there for psychology so I followed her, transferred, graduated from there as an undergrad. And then while she was doing the rest of her coursework, got a master's there. So that's how that happened. So I want to give some listeners, for listeners who don't know, I want to give them a sense of the sort of writer you are now to give um, mm -hmm. some context for what you just said and then jump back into what you did at LSU and then how you sort of um, move forward in grad school and then made your way into magazine writing. Um, so one thing, you know, I, I was... I was going through, I was talking about some of your writing with um, our shared sort of mentor and friend, John Waters, who's mm -hmm. my professor now at NYU. Um, and uh, we were talking about uh, your piece on Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Um, and I mean, on a number of other ones, um, I, one thing that I, that I was wondering as we were talking about that is what it means for you as a, as a critic at large at the, at the New York Times to really it must be the case that you get a lot of material just coming across your desk every day and you mm -hmm. certainly have a lot of things that you're interested in writing about because you do write about so much how do you how do you make a decision about what deserves to be covered and what deserves to um have a feature written about it um i do get like 100 emails a day from publicists it's incredible the rate of like relevance to irrelevance in those like it's almost nothing that ever interests me or is anything I would ever write about so not many in fact no ideas come from that at all ideas come from conversations with my editors or really just like things I stumble across and can't stop thinking about I don't write that much I think 
that's always like vexing to my editors. They want me to write more. Um, but it just takes me a long time. So I'm, I actually have a pretty high threshold for what, what I think is worth spending some months writing about. In the case of Mount Rushmore, that was kind of magazine practicality because my editor said to me, we're doing a travel issue. Um, it's places in America that people that people have never that you've never been to just somewhere interesting in America you've never been to that you've they've always kind of wanted to or were curious about and I immediately said Mount Rushmore and I don't know why I haven't thought about that place ever um, but that's what I said and my editor was like yeah that's good and then I told my family and they were mad at me because it was in the middle of winter and they were like you could have said Key West or something someone else went to Hawaii but we went to South Dakota in the winter. <laughs> um, so that was just, that was really, I mean, there is, there is one level of it, which is just like the editors want you in this issue and you've got to pick a subject. So, so I have just some recent articles you've written um, here. So I, the, the personal essay on Mount Rushmore, uh, also a profile of Russell Westbrook of the Oklahoma city of Oklahoma city thunder, um, who you call or rather praise as quote, an unreasonable maniac of historic proportions. Um, yeah, and, that's accurate. Yeah, it is. And and then I also was just looking at um, your introduction to uh, some of the until recently unpublished work of Annie Dillard. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, the, she's good. Have you read her? She's terrific. Yeah. 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 And I've been reading it. She's not only a, a great writer, but she's a writer for whom, um, uh, from whom a lot of other writers learn. I was reading um, Maggie yeah. Nelson's uh, collection of essays, The Art of Cruelty, which yeah. I just reckon I just realized was was. Um, committed to or, or rather what's the what's the phrase you use to describe like on the first page of a book an author will dedicated dedicated to, to was dedicated to um to annie dillard oh and was it i it didn't was, know that yeah yeah i think the line is to annie dillard who advises otherwise um <laughs> uh, so this is all to say you're very much a generalist um so you have a lot of interest and you can write confidently that sounds uh, insulting doesn't it a generalist? generalist i don't know don't you think so well, I think we're going to get into this because I'd like to ask okay. you some questions about the academy. I don't think so. I don't think okay. generalism is a dirty word at all, and that's why I, that's why I call you it. Um, was, yeah, yeah. Let's pause the podcast and yes. we can fight. Okay. <laughs> well, why don't you like the term generalist? Uh, Seeing as you pretty much, you, I don't know if if, if you, I could call anyone a generalist if I couldn't call you one. Ouch! <laughs> you're doubling <laughs> down. I'm sorry, God, you're not backing off at all. <laughs> Uh oh, I don't know. I guess it's the the old dumb prejudice cliche about like uh, what it, what's the saying? Jack of all things, master of none. Yeah, I guess it's that, and yeah. and it probably is a remnant of my early grad school PhD program yeah. training at NYU, um, where there was an intense pressure to professionalize and fully commit. Uh, not only intellectually, but like in your lifestyle choices, everything to the academy. Um, you know, to the point where advisors were advising their most brilliant students, like, I, I really think it's better when you don't have a serious girlfriend. I think you can really focus more. And I felt like when my daughter and I, I mean, when my daughter was born, um, in 2004, so I was in my third year of grad school, um, it was a secret 
like I kept it a secret. I would never have told my dissertation advisor about that. I mean, certain professors, yeah, but from some professors, no way, because that is the opposite of professionalization, having a baby. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And And yet you did it. And yet I did it, yeah. yeah. Um, So I think... Yeah, I think there, I think, I don't, and I don't know, it's probably not fair to blame that on um, the pressure to professionalize in grad school and all that either. I think, I think I do have some uh, part of me inside that is like, I don't know, what, what strain of American culture, or it's maybe not even American culture, I was going to say is like puritanical. Um, it's, you know what, there's something adolescent, there's something very adolescent to my drive to be a writer because that's when it formed. And it really formed in as like a reaction against some things, the, the psycho sludge that I was coming out of into semi grown upness. And like, and I think there is something irreducibly adolescent attached to my drive to write and probably to my writing. And, and it has to do with like, um, um, purity uh, domination as like a, a way to prove self-worth. Um, I don't know. What are other stupid you're, adolescent things? So, I mean, so you're saying that the adolescent qualities are a, a search for purity and, uh, like a search for, yeah, there's like, like, like this, I mean like that to be dominant. Yeah. I mean, hmm. yeah, it's like, it's like, yeah, it's like you want to be Michael Jordan, you know? And I wanted to be like Michael Jordan at writing. And some adolescent part of me, you know, when I made that decision, um, like Ralph Waldo Emerson to me was like hitting the Michael Jordan note. And so as, a, as opposed to that, the, the professionalization of the academy is adult like and its seriousness and sort of sternness and rigor. Because no. I, would, I would I would. OK. Yeah. No, 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 no. Actually, I no. Um, in this like little schematic that we're making up on the fly, I think I was lumping that in with the adolescent part of me okay. identified with the professionalization strand because there is this incredible drive toward purity. Right. Um, and, and, and this, um, rejection of the messiness of life and like the social aspects of life and the like, um, I don't know. There is like a stripping back, purity is the word I keep coming back to. It's like, it's kind of extreme. It's like, that is who you are and that is what you do. And, and here's, here's why I ask. I, I think I, um, I'm in, I'm in grad school and yeah. I'm undergoing the, 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 I mean, reluctantly in some ways, um, um, and just not at all in others. I am still in, in other ways undergoing the professionalization and the socialization mm-hmm. into the sort of academic lifestyle, which is one in which, of course, you specialize, you choose a topic, you choose a right. discipline and then a sub-discipline or sub-field right. and you throw yourself into it and, and into it some literature. And the, the idea that uh, you as a writer could, could move from being in uh, an intellectual setting in a milieu that would demand that of you mm. and then go and have uh, perhaps the kind of um, intellectual confidence or a sort of recklessness or abandon or perhaps um, sort of uh, adolescence to think, actually, I'm going to write about a lot of different things, mm-hmm. but I'm going to perhaps, and this is what I'm wondering, ask some of the same fundamental questions about those things. Do you find yourself asking the same 
like the same deep question that you, you put to your study of Oklahoma City Thunder to yeah. the questions you put to Annie Dillard? I think so. I hope so. Um, I do see it all, all on a continuum. I'm always trying to get people in the magazine world like to read theory or to read criticism that I encountered in grad school and telling them like, no, it's not intimidating and scary. It's not this other order of thing. It's just really brilliant people thinking brilliantly. Like there's, there's really bad stuff out there. Yeah, there's bad theory. But is there bad magazine writing? Yeah, there's mostly bad magazine writing. There's probably mostly bad theory. But the really great stuff is is really great. And it's on this continuum with other great writing and other great thinking. Um, so, I don't know. It's all very complicated. I'm trying to put myself back in. I mean, I've like I said, I found it really attractive the notion of professionalization but at the same time it's i like i said i never wanted to be an academic i never ever ever did even when i was in the middle of the the nyu grind of turning into a grad student and like a apprentice professor and all that stuff um i thought this is great. This is really working my brain hard and it's really making me think hard about things I've never thought about before. And that makes my old writing look kind of stupid and naive. And I appreciated that. Um, and it added this new layer to my capabilities as a writer, which is really exciting. Um, but I came to New York like you came to New York which was to go to graduate school and study literature and get as smart as I could about literature while secretly writing for magazines on the side because you need to go to New York if you want to write for magazines. That was a secret. That was absolutely a secret. Not from people like John Waters, who were okay with it, who understood, but um, from most other professors, yes. And so when I came to New York, the first thing I was doing was pitching talk of the town pieces to the New Yorker, um, you know, while I was in the pro seminar in grad school and, um, and getting rejected and pitching to slate and getting rejected by them. And, um, so my plan was always to, my plan actually was move to New York, get paid a nice stipend to go to NYU read interesting things, but probably leave the PhD program after six months because the New Yorker would have hired me on as a staff writer and like realized I was the next voice of the New Yorker. Did you lose faith in that vision at any point? Say in like your second year, you're sending, uh, you're sending um, letters and submissions to the New Yorker getting rejected. No, I did not lose faith in that. What something more interesting happened, which was that I kind of gained faith in the academy and in critical theory and in the work I was doing here. I really did feel like I was changed, especially by those first two really intense years of, of studying um, and reading hard and listening to brilliant people like John Waters and a lot of other people, like really brilliant people. Encountering people who were just inarguably and obviously and laughably smarter than me. I mean, just smarter than me. 
like I thought I was pretty smart at various stages of my education. And then I got here and I listened to my classmates and professors talk for the first couple weeks in the pro seminar and other seminars. And, and I thought I don't belong here. I can't cut it. Like these people are so much more brilliant than I am. Um, and then I started to get comfortable and realize a lot of this is just a question of language. It's like they are fluent in a language that I don't know because I haven't been exposed to it, but I can slowly get there. And I did in some cases. So in some cases I learned like, oh, that guy is actually not that brilliant. He just knows how to speak about this stuff because he's been steeped in it. That guy over there is completely brilliant. And that woman is like maybe the most brilliant person you're ever going to meet in your life. And, um, it's interesting to feel out where you sit on this hierarchy of intelligence and, and to see how people who have these incredible intellectual minds, how they use them, you know, where they point that energy. It's like really interesting. I found it fascinating. I spent a lot of time, I felt like sitting around watching people talk and, um, and, and make hand gestures. In fact, I remember <laughs> I used to draw diagrams of people's signature hand gestures as they were speaking and totally. thinking. You notice that? Oh, like yeah. they're well, all each academic has a very set. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Just so interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's so interesting. So in a sense, I was also like studying on a, on a meta level, that kind of stuff. I always thought maybe I would write like some novel about grad school at some point. Um, I think especially with the gesticulations, it shows very clearly the way like it's an, it's, it's a direct, um, reflection of the way they're categorizing their own thoughts or like mm. the way they're sort of like, like what if they're expressive, if they back box things with their hands, mm -hmm. or if they sort of, I mean, this is totally it's a like grabbing the air and yeah, twisting yeah. the air they and, like, and, and like knobs, like they bring nuance to yeah. things with their yep. fingers. Yep. <laughs> it's so interesting. Yeah. 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 I always kind of wanted to write an essay about that. Somewhere I have diagrams of John Waters and others' signature <laughs> finger gestures. Did you ever take on their fi finger gestures? Like, did no. you? You didn't. Okay. Not that I know of. I didn't talk a lot. I didn't talk a lot. I was so intimidated. I don't think of myself as a good talker. So I listened a lot and I watched a lot. And... Yeah, one, one book I really loved... I don't even know if I read the whole book, but was, um, what's the guy's name? The book is Paratext. Do you know this? Um, is it Gerard Jeanette? Is that a name? Okay, we'll look it up. Anyway, the notion was that he would, he, he, it's like a, a critical study of what he called Paratext, which is like the framing texts around the texts that we tend to pay attention to. Um, so like the table of contents and what work that does as, you know, as, as a statement or as a, it's like framing devices, yeah. page numbers, indexes, anything. So I always loved thinking about that stuff that was around the thing that you were supposed to be looking at. I don't know if that's particular to grad school. I think that's just temperament. And then I've, I've always remembered, and sometimes I mean to go back and look this up. Maybe you know this, but there's a, a Derrida and I can't even remember what book it's in. It was a long time ago that I was in graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It doesn't feel that long ago, but it was a long time ago, and I forget the names of books now. But Derrida had this little paragraph that I found really profound, and I'm probably misunderstanding it and simplifying it, um, but for me, it's been useful. And it's just like a, a principle of criticism, which is 
the phrase he uses is um, doubling the text, which he says basically it is it is a waste of your time to merely double the text mm-hmm. with your criticism to just um, in a very simple way, like restate what the text is doing. And instead of doubling the text, you kind of create this new thing or, you know, you pay attention to the parts of the text you're not supposed to pay attention to. Or uh, I found that to be a really exciting and like, and is, is doubling the text like description? Yeah. Doubling the text is like description or even more than that. Cause you know how, crazy he gets like even more than that i think just like just like a straight critical reading of a text mm-hmm. would be like doubling the text i mean you're just doing what, what the text doing, wants yeah. you to do mm-hmm. and that's not our job i found that a really powerful critical principle whether you're you know i mean mount rushmore is a good example of that doubling the text is standing in front of mount rushmore and saying um <clears throat> look at these giant heads like they're the embodiment of america or something yeah. <laughs> all this i got so i got such hateful emails after that piece came out in all capital letters um, the, from like Trumpy style people. Yeah, sure. Well, th- th- I think the final paragraph of that piece, you the fi- the image you arrive at is I think like Mount Rushmore in flames. Or yeah, something. tiny, <laughs> tiny Mount Rushmore off in the distance with this. Yeah, this red cloud of flame in front of it. So this 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 Derry Dean idea of like um, not doubling the text, yeah, um, is that a, a? It sounds like that might be a concept that you do bring to bear on your magazine writing and on just yeah. The I think I do, do try now. to. Okay. I think that that like sense of looking at the paratext of things, um, which is just which is very connected to the doubling the text. You're like looking in places where you're not meant to be looking. You're doing interpretive moves where, and I find that to be really fun and creative and interesting like Mm -hmm. it's creative to find a critical subject like that like i had a professor here john guillory is he still around yeah i mean there's another one who like it doesn't you don't get more brilliant than john guillory first time i read him i was like 15 because he's he's in this like big anthology of literary theory and his work on um oh cultural capital capital was was in it Yeah. yeah yeah i mean yeah he, and he had this paper that I think came out in critical inquiry while I was here, but we got to read like the early version of it in a seminar and it was called the modernity of the memo. It was a history of the memo as a genre, like the business memo and how that differed from more old fashioned styles like the letter. Um, and I can't remember if he got into like how it predicted things like email, but I can't even summarize here because it was so brilliant what he pulled from that, the modernity of the memo. And just that takes that to select that as a subject and to see the critical angles there is such an act of creativity to me. Um, so I found, and there's another example of like, I mean, that's not quite paratext, but it is, it is looking at culture in a way that culture doesn't expect or, or, or mean to be looked at. So, so I always found, I always, I always tried to resist this like easy split between creativity and, and criticism. Um, because I think they're kind of one in the same. Well, that's, that's, that's striking because I mean, one thing I think that, um, one way to characterize your writing is um, what you were saying much earlier, which is that it is it sort of um, brings together the critical and the colloquial or the familiar. Mm. Um, a lot, often, 
sort of reading your writing, it, it feels like a like an intelligent email sent from one friend to another. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's that's it's 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 like it has a certain familiarity and ease, especially mm. you're writing on sentences. Uh, there's yeah, a yeah, kind yeah. of intimacy to them. That uh, I do send those via email. Yeah. So oh, you do. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, They're so short. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm just. I mean. Uh, one thing that's striking as well is is just the way, and I, I like to get back to this idea of the way you select topics mm-hmm. to address. It sounds like your process might be similar to what you were describing with, with John Guillory, which is um, the very act of selecting a topic and choosing an angle to take on it that isn't just mere ex- explication of mm-hmm. the meaning of the thing mm-hmm. um, is itself a creative act. Would you say that that's, that that's a major preoccupation of yours is just like try to choose a thing that is compelling, but surprising and mm-hmm. take an angle on it. That is compelling, but surprising. Mm-hmm. And surprising. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have anything more profound sure, to say sure. than yes. So some of the writing that you did, at NYU when you were pitching. Yeah. Um, could you, could you describe like when, what, wh- yeah. when was the shift where you thought, Oh, actually I can make it. I can leave NYU. Um, okay. How did my secret writing career blossom at NYU? I was pitching the New Yorker. I was pitching slate. I pitched, I managed to publish a a handful of book reviews in places like newspapers, like regional newspapers. Um, And you ended up in the Oxford American, right? When you were, I, yeah, I published in the Oxford American when I was down at LSU. Um, I took a class in literary nonfiction writing and that came out of one of those assignments. And then I polished and polished for months and then sent it in and they bought it and put it on the cover, which was really exciting paid me $500 um, for 5,000 word essay. So that was thrilling. Um, So that was there. So I had some kind of clips behind me as I was sending pitches out. And um, the big one, the big break really came when I went to Ireland with the NYU study abroad program. And I worked as an RA on the program. So I got this paid trip to Ireland, which was great. And I decided for the six weeks or whatever that I was there, I was going to read Ulysses all the way through for the first time, which I'd never successfully done and just had the most wonderful time walking around Dublin and hunkering down on benches and reading Ulysses. And when I got back, I pitched an article, an essay about that to the American scholar. Which, which to me, which is funny, I picked, I remember picking up the American Scholar as a freshman in college in Ashland, Oregon, and feeling like it was the most, it to me was like this ideal of like, um, like academic sophistication, which is so funny to think about now. But as an 18 year old or whatever, that was like the most grown up thing I could possibly sit and read in the park was the American Scholar. Um, Certainly has a grown-up title. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an Amazonian title too. Exactly. Yeah. So. Oh, that's right. It hits that note. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I pitched to them, and I spent I spent like three whole weeks, I think, working every day, some portion of every day on the pitch letter for that essay, 
and then sent it to them and heard back almost immediately. And mm. they were like, um, yes, we would love it. Like, please write the essay and then send it to us and we'll consider it. <laughs> like that was the bar that I cleared. So I was on their radar. So, and then, it, and then I spent, uh, I must've spent six or eight months or something writing and revising this essay. And this was, this was my, I think, I guess my second year of grad school. Well, I, that, uh, the essay is really, really great. Um, to, uh, you, it's from, as you say, it was in, you wrote it in grad school, so it was around the early 2000s. And, um, 2004, 2004, it was published that summer, yeah. Yeah, and it was, it was basically about your own personal bloomsday, though you didn't mm-hmm. go to Dublin on June 16th. Right. Um, one thing that's really interesting about that article is that it's obviously from your early writing, but you do a lot of the things in it that you end up having doing... Um, as a writer and that you continue to do or that you at least did in New York, which is, um, imitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you imitate Joyce yeah, uh, in, in one, in one section. Why do you do that? You, so you wrote, <laughs> I mean, in, well, in the, in the Joyce one, it's, it's interesting I'm because sorry. you use, no, I like it. It's fun. It's fun. Okay. Um, but you use like, uh, like Greek epithets in the way that he does and you write out sounds and noises. Yeah. And I, I create a lot of, uh, what Portman, Portmanteau, Portmanteau words. Yeah. yeah. Con- combined yep. words. Yep. Joyce, Joyce celebration. Joyce, yeah, yeah, exactly, that kind yeah. of stuff. Joyce experience yeah. where the E blends <laughs> over. Good, yeah. yeah. Um, I think, I mean, partly that was the influence of reading thousand pages of Joyce or whatever, you know, where you're just like language becomes this thing that you just mess around with constantly. Right. So you, I mean, it's, it's gotta be inevitable that when a critic is asked to read a book and she reads it really quickly and, 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 and writes a review, there's going to be traces Mm -hmm. of the style. Your, yours, that was a conscious act. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, because again, like, Creativity and criticism for me were so intermingled that I wanted my criticism to be playful and fun in the same way that creative writing was. I wanted it to serve and fulfill its critical function, mm-hmm. um, but I wanted to have fun while doing it. I wanted to hit like as many of the great notes as I could, and fun and play was w- one of those, you know? Um, so I wanted it to be as smart as it possibly could be, but also as funny and inventive as it could be too so yeah there's that there's like a paragraph where oh yeah it's at the end of the essay when i went swimming at the 40 foot the swimming hole outside the old martello tower and the water was so cold and I do this whole like pseudo Joycean right. stream of consciousness. You start with weird. the sound of the splash, I think, as you like get in or something. Oh or yeah, something. it's yeah. like the water. Yeah, no, it's the water moving. It's like right. yeah, yeah. And then there's this red-faced Irishman goading me to get in the water. Very <laughs> Joycean. That was funny. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that was real. He was there. Well, there is. I I would say okay. I would say there's a certain um, um like boldness in trying to imitate openly uh-huh. and not hide the fact that you're very much trying to imitate Joyce yeah. in a review. Yeah. Um, and did you continue to, you, you did continue with that, um, tactic, that stylistic tactic when you moved to New York magazine. Yeah. I did after. some imitative reviews where I would like, I think the first one I did was Donald Barthelme short story collection where I wrote a review that was like a Barthelme short story. It was this absurdist, like seen in the book review factory or something. 
that was really fun to write. Uh, and it also functioned as a book review of the collection. I mean, for me, that's partly a question of like, it's partly a question of how do I keep, how do I do something entertaining? How do I just not write a standard review? How do I do something more creative? How do I entertain myself and therefore any potential readers? And also I think there's something like really uh, critically efficient about it. It's like the question a reader comes to a book review with is what is this book like? And you're like, well, this is what it's like. You are now inside what the book is like and you're experiencing that even as I'm telling you what the book is like. So it's just like criticism operating uh, operating on multiple levels at once and it's just fun. And I got to tell dumb jokes. And <laughs> That was the first half of our conversation with Sam Anderson, critic at large at the New York Times Magazine. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. And oh, what a year it's been for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.